everyone. It's April 15th, 2018, and this is episode 141 of uh, Percussion. I'm your host, Casey Cangelosi, and I just want to give you guys a quick reminder that you can listen to this podcast on YouTube, you can listen to it on iTunes, and all the other usual podcast catchers and those locations, and our archive is on Blogspot. I don't say this type of reminder enough. And if you want to support our Patreon, you can't because we don't have one. And and we probably... Not for profit. <laughs> and if you want... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we will someday, but uh, we, we, have not, we have not bothered. So, yeah, with me today are Laurel Black. Hi. And Ben Charles. How's it going? Hi, everybody. Doing well? Excellent, excellent. So, you guys, we have two composers with us today. We have the epic return of Zach Browning. He's an associate professor emeritus of music at the University of Illinois. And his most recent solo CD is called Secret Pulse. It was released on Innova in 2012 and was labeled Infectious by the American Record Guide. Uh, perfectly varied, perfectly represented by top-notch ensembles, and perfectly presented by perspectives on sound. And yeah, I have to say, I was giving it a listen just this morning, and uh, totally agree. Really, really cool, cool stuff. And David Pagel completed his doctorate in composition from the University of Miami in Coral Gables, Florida, specializing in Anglican choral repertoire. His works are praised for an uncanny sense of the marriage of text and music. So, welcome to our two composer friends, uh, Zach and David. How are you guys? Doing well. Glad to be here. And I'm glad to return from podcast number 37. Is that right? Wow, 37. Jeez, I, it does not feel that long ago. And I was going to take a guess. I was going to say like, oh yeah, it was like 100, maybe 104 or something. Wow, 37. Holy cow. Yeah, it's two years ago. What, what number is this, Casey? Uh, 141. Oh, okay, it would be wow. cool if it was exactly 100 later. <laughs> wow. wow, way to go. Holy cow, that's um, time flies. That is really, really crazy. Well, can you guys give us just a little rundown of what you're doing there on site with Ben? I know you guys have a concert in a couple of days, and Ben's group is playing a bunch of y'all's pieces, right? Yeah, Zach, why don't you go ahead and start? Oh, okay. Well, yeah, uh, Ben's amazing, his group here. Uh, yesterday had a rehearsal on one of the pieces. It was absolutely great. Without that CD, the Casey just watched. Yeah, Flying Tones is on the uh, oh, okay. Super Pulse CD that's infectious. And <laughs> remember, there's no vaccine for that either. <laughs> okay. But anyway, Cowbell. yeah, that's, I hear Cowbell's uh, the vaccine for it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what Ben has put together on my side is 23 years of music. I don't know if you realize that. <laughs> he's, he's doing four pieces. One of them's from 1994, uh, and it's actually for trumpet ensemble. Ben is conducting trumpet five amplified trumpets with computer sounds. It's called Breakpoint Screamer. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So he's putting that together. And it, it, I'm looking forward to hearing that. I'm sure it's going to be great. <laughs> but anyway, the other three pieces are percussion. Uh, the most recent one is from 2016, Fate and Fusion, which you guys helped commission. And uh, Ben's playing that with his uh, student yeah. who transferred from Florida. He, a terrific player. Uh, what's his name? Darshan. Darshan, yeah. Darshan. <laughs> Shout out to Darshan. <laughs> but that, that piece, anyway, is based on Feng Sui on the date, specifically the date April 15th, which, which is, is today's today, yeah. date. <laughs> Excellent. It's also, it's my daughter's birthday, which is part of the piece, and it's also uh, the, the date that uh, Ben's father passed away. So 
sort of a looks at life through the perspective of April 15th. Uh, wow. 1987, 1991. And then there's two other works. Uh, this large ensemble work, um, flute and percussion ensemble, I think eight players yeah. in that, uh, which is based on the uh, Durer Square, the magic square that was in uh, this etching called Melancholia by uh, Albert Durer. So if you want to look that up, podcast people, go out there and do it. <laughs> and then the, the last piece he's doing there is... Um, Flying Tones, which you mentioned is on the uh, Secret Pulse CD, and uh, unconducted flying tones. Unconducted. That's 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 a major. <laughs> so proud. Yeah, it's, yeah. During the rehearsal yesterday, that was beyond impressive. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. In fact, I said, Ben, you got to put these guys in a competition. I mean, they were playing it so well without uh, having a conductor there. You know. Uh, wow. Cool. So anyway, it's based on uh, the build, the dedication of a building at University of Central Florida. I used the Funk Sway, uh, November 20th, 2010, I think that was. Uh, so yeah, Fat uh, Anderson, I'll give him a shout out. He commissioned that work yeah, at, yeah. at UCF. Uh -huh. and real quick, Zach's also doing a lecture on Monday, and I won't, uh, for one of our music theory classes, I saw him give this lecture on Friday at UNT, and I won't make him give away his whole lecture by any means, but you keep returning to, to the feng shui thing. So can you tell us just a little bit about that and how you use it in your composition? Yeah. And if you want the full lecture, you got to pay for it, but this is the clip. Yeah, yeah. I'm not giving away, <laughs> I don't give away my gig. Man. Uh, but anyway, the, the lecture is called The Harmony of Numbers. And there's two things about that lecture. One is I look at the music of Phil Collins, among other uh, artists, you know, and there's a piece I talk about in the air tonight. And, and then on the concert Monday night, the steel drum band is doing In the Air tonight. Which Caleb arranged, their student you, Caleb arranged it. I can't wait to hear this, man. I was so excited when he told me. All right, so the other part of this, yeah, Feng Shui, I talk about Feng Shui, which uh, uh, there's diff different systems of Feng Shui, but there's one called the Flying Star system of Feng Shui, and what it does, it rotates the Loshu Square, which helps a Feng Shui expert, who I'm not, help predict your future. So I use these numbers to to create music based on a person's birth date or the, the building they live in, et cetera, et cetera. Wow, so, yeah, great. Collection. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, oh, I was gonna say something else about the the magic square thing. Oh, and you said that two other composers that used it were John Cage. John, well, John Cage briefly used it yeah, yeah. in 1950, right before he went to the I Ching. And the other is Peter Baxall yeah. Davies, who, who passed away, I think, two years ago. But from 1975, two years ago, off and on, he would use these, uh, what's called the planetary squares. So, but so yeah, in, in short, basically Zach takes the numbers and he uses them to sort of hash out the lengths of sections in the piece or the density or which thematic material to choose that are which instruments get orchestrated for it. So a lot of his pieces, you sort of hear the same thing presented over and over and over, but with one part missing or slightly shorter, slightly longer and things like this. And that all has to do with the, the numbers game that he plays. And I was-, I was it's, it's a secret pulse. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was so excited. So part of the whole, the Phil Collins in the air tonight thing, Zach uses golden section like Debussy did. And the big drum fill in, in the air tonight comes in exactly at the golden section. And Zach and I were talking about this song by The Who, 
called Won't Get Fooled Again. And I said, I wanted the big hit to come then, and it didn't. And he told me to look at it some different ways. And I found the golden section in this tune last night. And I was, David was there when I did I was so excited. I was jumping out of my seat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he nerded out hardcore this, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah he texted me like a midnight. Yeah, I was like, Zach, I found it. I got it. I'll show you tomorrow. So. <laughs> well, you got something, I think. Yeah. Well, first a tidbit. I, I talked about feng shui a lot when Casey and I were house hunting. Ah, very good. <laughs> yeah, we were. We'd walk into a place. And I was like, no, poison arrows everywhere. Absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> no. <laughs> and wind chimes and <laughs> put up uh, what fish tanks and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, plants are important. Um, yeah, I'm curious to know. You no guys plant. are talking about a piece that um, you're doing not conducted. What about that piece makes it like such a feat to do it without a conductor? you want to take that or should I? <laughs> well, uh, there's a lot of dramatic changes, tempo changes, and uh, on top of that, it's complex rhythmically. Yeah, but a lot of, there's a lot of mixed meter and not like, not just like seven, eight, like stuff, 15, eight, and I think there might even be some like seven, 16, like, sure. yeah, I mean, it's just, if you don't have a one person up there unifying it, you better make sure. And it actually, it starts with a crash symbol trio and it's in like five, eight, seven, eight, nine, eight, four, four, and it keeps bouncing back. So basically everyone has to account for everyone else's part. And if you don't, the whole thing falls apart immediately. Yeah, I'll <laughs> add to, that, to add to that too, it's, uh, they're spread out. Too. Yeah. So uh, this, like you saw about the symbol, the far right, far left is going back and forth to that pulse or sending it back and forth. So that makes it harder too, right? Yeah. Yeah, from a, um, from just the listener standpoint, uh, observing the rehearsal yesterday, um, not just the distance, but I mean, any sort of pocketing in general with the conductor, it's very easy to tune out the other players mm -hmm. and, you know, just be like, I got my part. Yeah, I just exactly. got to stay with the conductor. When you take that conductor away, oh my gosh, I have to actually think about the music and collaborating with my fellow musicians, which when it locks together, it makes for a much more musical sound. It's just a lot harder for things to lock yeah, that's together. A, that's such an excellent point, and to emphasize how well the group's doing, they're all undergrads. There's not even a senior on this group, and you know, two it, freshmen. It, it, yeah, you got. It's hard to get cool. the students, you know, to actually listen to each other, right? And they have to to play this piece like that. So, good job, Ben. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then Casey, you had something, right? Yeah, thanks. You know, I had that same feeling just. We're doing this piece by Ted Akats called Chaos to Creation, which is really beautiful. I don't think there have been many performances or, or recordings, but I've, I have a feeling this piece is going to get played a whole lot more once there are. And Ben, the exact same thing. I, I walked into rehearsal late. I was stuck in a, a meeting with someone, and I walked in, I don't know, 10 minutes late, and they were just rehearsing on their own without me and man they were doing just so good i was so pleased and i got that exact same feeling then just like whoa they're they're doing that so so well so i don't know it's really really fun to see that with your students yeah laura what do you got there yeah well, i was wondering um david what pieces of yours are happening at ben's school oh yeah absolutely so um ben and i obviously did our uh doctorates together and he's started asking me for just pieces left and right. I've, he could, he's commissioned me for four works so far. Wow. And we're doing three of them 
um, on this performance, uh, all for percussion. And also the the wind ensemble is playing one of David's works as well. Oh yeah, yeah, right. I, yeah. It's um, which Ben got me the hook up there as well, which is a uh, super fun. The the first piece, um, I'm, I'll just talk about these uh, chronologically, the percussion pieces. Uh, the first one is a, um, a piece called Orion, and it's for flute and percussion ensemble. And basically, the way that my commissions with Ben have worked in the past is he comes to me with an idea or two that makes me scratch my head until I can figure out how I can make it work programma programmatically. And so what Ben approached me with was um, the idea of offstage metallic percussion with some things still going on on stage and obviously um, wanted the flute part in there as well. And one of the first things I thought of when I was thinking offstage metallic percussion was just little glimpses of light out in the sky, well, constellations. And one of my favorite and one of the most recognizable constellations is Orion, which is um, in the aspect of Greek mythology, a lot of people aren't familiar with. I'm a huge aficionado of Greek mythology. Also, so, if you've seen Men in Black, the galaxies on Orion's belt. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, that's, yeah. that's true. <laughs> with, with, I always thought, I, yeah, it was it was a cat's yeah. little little collar, right? Yeah. Or dog yeah. collar, I guess. Do you know? Do you know the um, what's her name? The pathologist or whatever in Men in Black. Her name is Laurel. That was very important to me. <laughs> very important movie in all of our lives. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's important that, that you see strong female figures to look up to. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, but um, a lot of my pieces, um, my compositions in general, I really like to tell stories. And so this particular story is somebody stargazing and seeing Orion and then thinking about the mythological figure. And Orion is a mythological hunter. And so there's three sections of the piece. Um, one that's just the, just the narrator, as it were, looking at the stars. And then their mind wanders into this faster, more elaborate section that is the hunter going on the hunt. And one of the offstage percussionists is playing a gong, and Ben actually specifically said, I would love a point where the gong just overwhelms everything. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I actually wrote in the score, overwhelm everything. Yeah, cool. So <clears throat> the, um, and that's, I basically interpreted as the stargazer wakes up from the reverie and was like, oh, I'm out in the stars. So it ends really, really peaceful basically the person actually falling asleep under the stars. So, um, I just too quick, just uh, it made me think for a second of uh, Messian's piece, the big wind ensemble piece that has the gongs on either side. Yeah. Was that the resurrection of Jesus Christ or something? Oh, geez. I know I know what piece you're I, talking about. And I, uh, yeah, it's I, incredible. If you ever see that live, you know, that feeling of a, that metal swarming the hall. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Messiaen's actually um, one of my, um, as somebody who writes with a little, little bit more t of a tonal palette than Messiaen, um, <laughs> he's actually one of my biggest influences just in regards to experimenting with colors and timbres and that sort of thing. And percussion ensemble is a great avenue to do that. So David's also an organist, so there's that. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, you also write a lot of, a lot of... <laughs> Well, send it my way. I mean, we'll, we'll see if we'll see if I'm good enough to hack it. So, um, I'm not a very good dancer, so sometimes my feet get dumb when it comes to playing the organ. So, so that's one of the pieces. The uh, 
the second the second piece chronologically i wrote orion in 2013 and then in 2014 ben comes back to me and says david i want you to write another piece for me specifically um and um this is a piece that um he wanted solo marimba and ben's amazing at fast two mallet stuff yeah and so solo marimba and percussion quartet and he let this one be very much up for grabs for me. And so I spent way too long trying to hunt for an idea. And one of the things I ended up settling on was um, an interesting quirk about Ben, if you guys don't know this, is that he loves Ikea furniture. So I uh, I actually we knew. wrote <laughs> yeah. I actually wrote the piece based on my first experience <laughs> in in Ikea where I proceeded to get lost for two and a half hours. And so the piece is essentially about getting lost in an Ikea. And so I spent a long time hunting for a title and actually asked my friends what we should call this piece. And one of them came up with this delightfully punny title, which is by far the punniest title I have ever given for a piece. The piece is called I Can't Even spelled Ikea in apostrophe T even. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I was talking to David about this piece last night, and there, there was this interesting thing that came up that I've been telling people for years, this is why he did it, but he said, I didn't intend that, but that kind of works. So the piece is based on mostly octatonic scales, and I always showed people, if you, if you play a major scale, when you get to the seventh scale degree, you get this leading tone, and it feels a sense of you know tension and release and resolution, and you feel like you've found your way. And octatonic scale, it's like every other note is a leading tone. So like if you think about being lost in Ikea, like you're constantly, oh, am I there? No, oh, no, that wasn't the exit. Am I, oh, am I there? And like it has this constant struggle of trying to find its way out. And I told David that. He was like, oh, that's really cool. I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but it's there now. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not going to pretend I did that deliberately, but sometimes <laughs> the composition is smarter than the composer. So I will, you know, end up using that in every lecture that I give <laughs> yes. now that includes this piece. But, oh, that's great. but one of the challenges that I encounter with this, it's like, how do I make a piece that clearly represents Ikea? And that, um, aside from, you know, a really plain title, because otherwise it just seems kind of silly. And two of the things I immediately thought of is, can you use instruments that you sometimes see in percussion ensemble, but that visually look like something you could just buy off a shelf at Ikea. Things like a ratchet, or even a triangle kind of looks like an Ikea product. I honestly got a marimba. I mean, it's marimba's flat pack, pretty much. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, and so I experimented with that, but that still wasn't quite enough, and then I thought, what if I could actually use Ikea products as instruments? So each player, um, player four has the option, but sometimes, it works better with something else. But each player has a quote-unquote instrument that is actually an Ikea product. Uh, player one's playing um, bar glasses. They're playing it like claves. <clears throat> um, player two is playing hung flower pots. Player three is actually playing power drill. And they actually have a power drill solo. <laughs> so, which is, yeah. And then player four has the option of actually playing like an Ikea tabletop a cajon or a set of congas can actually work equally as well. So um, I think that's actually what we're going to be doing for this upcoming performance. So they use that drill on the piano. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I've 
Well, if uh, if I incorporate a piano into one of these pieces that I write for Ben, and it has another IKEA focus, I could probably use the power on there. You know, with the right head, so right. that I don't like, you know. It's all right. Our piano professor's on sabbatical right now, so we can do <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So I don't have to worry about them hunting me down and you know wanting to kill me. So, because as we all know, pianists can be very particular about the extended techniques that they use on the instrument. So is there a um, so part of this piece where you like angrily throw miscellaneous Allen wrenches and screws and wooden dowels <laughs> everywhere? I, I, well, I'm an IKEA master. <laughs> yeah. And, and you so. kick some, yeah, you kick it to pieces. <laughs> David, I'm just, I'm imagining 50 years from now when IKEA is making snare drums, people are going to look back at this work and be like, how did he make this oversight? Look, he could have used a snare, <laughs> IKEA snare drum. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> now the uh, yeah. Well, I'll make the revisions there. You know. <laughs> or hopefully, well, yeah. Hopefully, well, you know, I might live that long. So, um, but the uh, so that's piece number two. Piece number three. I'm revisiting the um, mythological side of things somewhat. This was by far the most challenging commission that Ben gave me because, and I quote, I want a piece for trombone and percussion ensemble. And I want it to be aggressive, um, maybe war as a subject. But can you use slide whistles and steel drums in it? So the slide uh, whistles, real quick. The slide whistles was uh, I stole that from George Crumb. Yeah. The okay. uh, yeah. Uh, what's the quartet called? Two piano, two percussion. Yeah, we just yeah. did it. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, like Microcosmos yeah. three. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah play the slide whistles into the open lids. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's weird because you always think of a slide whistle as a kid's instrument, and then you hear it and that, and it's just this creepy sort of haunting, toneful, slightly out of tune thing that's just unbelievable. So yeah, after I heard that, I was like, we gotta have that in this because it's a little trombone. <laughs> yeah, and I actually ended up. Trombone. Well, yeah, I actually ended up playing with the. Uh, slide whistle as such. I actually, um, some of my best friends are trombonists and I played a little bit of trombone in undergrad. I was a um, euphonium principal when I was an undergrad. And I always joked around that it's like trombone should always be in tune. You're playing a glorified slide whistle. You know, and I say that half sarcastically because actually it's really hard to get both a trombone and a slide whistle in tune. So I, in my infinite wisdom, decided to have the trombone and the slide whistle playing together as duets melodically, which I'm sure has been somewhat of a challenge for the players. So, but. So real quick, if I could interject, part of the reason I wanted to do this piece is we have an exceptional trombone player here named Chad. And Chad is like the student that practices at 7 a.m. every single morning. It's pretty crazy and like practices well, like does fundamentals for like an hour, then gets into his repertoire. And, uh, I'm making his poor girlfriend, who's a clarinet player, play the slide whistle part. Uh, <laughs> do, do, you have to, do you have to? Do you have to do exact pitches? Do you write exact pitches yeah. for the slide oh, yeah. whistle? And I mean, I think it's expected. There's going to be some portamento, and it, it will be slightly, right. somewhat out of characteristically out of tune. But yeah, I mean, it's it's pitches. We yeah. we practiced that crumb like crazy, and we even made gauges on the slide yeah. whistle to try to get the harmonies yeah. real accurate and. Um, yeah, yeah, even when it's real accurate, you're right, it's it's eerie. Yeah, I ended up using three different slide whistles, and Ben actually bought several different slide whistles and sent me the specific pitches of each of them, and I used what seemed right. But the three different slide whistle parts, only one of them is exact pitches. The other ones are doing, like, overblow, slow glissandi in part of the sections. So, 
it's um I didn't get too um, sadistic with <laughs> with this particular approach. But the piece itself, um, when I was thinking about the subject matter, because uh, I also mentioned it's like Ben suggested steel pants in this, which immediately you think, you know, under the sea sort of deal <laughs> with that. And so it's like war, sea. One of the first things I thought about was the Normandy invasions at D-Day. Um, but I also had Greek mythology in my head. Oh, this was another thing that you had suggested because you hadn't suggested nearly enough. <laughs> yeah, um, I pretty much wrote the piece. <laughs> Man, I got off easy. Dave was my engraver. <laughs> Ish. The, um, but he actually was like, you know, the melody of the Epitaph of Cyclos, which is the first um, actual notated melody that we have musicologically on record. Mm -hmm. um, this this melody is super cool and it would be cool to incorporate. And so, of course, my mind immediately hops back to Greek mythology. And one of the things I immediately thought about, you know, with D-Day in the back of my head was it was like the Greek god of war is Ares. So, and just the inspirational sentence that popped into my head was, what if the Greek god of war was behind the Normandy invasions? We actually originally wanted to be called Mars, but the host lawyers came after us and... <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, was, it was definitely a lot of fun to put together, but the piece is um, super long. Well, by super long, there are definitely longer pieces, but as far as the typical pieces I write, you know, Orion's, what, seven, eight minutes, yeah. Aries is 20. And it's a three movement thing. And I, uh, and I, the three movements are titled The God Approaches. So it's like Aries coming to the beach. And that features a lot of like, the trombone playing slow themes and that sort of stuff, as if the trombone player himself is the god of war. And then the second movement is called the 6th of June, which was D-Day. And that's, you know, where the players go crazy. That's where you have, like, the slide whistles all doing crazy glissandi. There's two sets of timpani on stage that are playing antiphonally just as aggressively as possible. There's some 12-tone stuff in there. You know, it's just supposed to be as chaotic as possible. And then the third movement, which is the longest, is what I called epitaph. And that's actually what has the cyclos uh, um, motif in there. And I actually pulled up the text for the epitaph itself. And what it says is, while you live, shine, have no grief at all. Life exists only for a short while, and time demands an end. So... One of the characteristics about Ares in mythology was that he was like always the colossal screw up and he knew it. So like these heavy war based actions would take place and you wouldn't see him feeling remorse, but you would see him thinking to himself, not in a positive manner and being reprimanded by the other gods in a lot of different ways. So I actually looked at this, I gave the, the Cyclops melody to the trombone as if Ares were singing that as an epitaph to all of the other fallen soldiers. So Neat. it actually ends on a very somber note, which is, which was a lot of fun. I had a blast writing this piece from beginning to end, even though it really, really challenged me. So, so also I had one other thing to add to David's thing. 
again, I, I kind of like dictated quite a lot of this. Yeah. And so another thing, when I think of pieces about war, it's not about war, but it was created right around World War One, uh, Rite of Spring. Um, and Rite of Spring, as you know, has two timpani parts to it. And so I told David, well, we've got two good sets of timpani here. Like, why don't you use two timpanists? So there's two timpani players. Um, and it's, it has a lot of this sort of bouncing back and forth like you see in Rite of Spring. But then also, I don't remember, the, I think this was, no, I think this was actually my idea. <laughs> uh, there's that part toward the end of Rite of Spring where the, the trombones go, da 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 dum yeah. that little five-lit. Yeah, yeah, that was all your And I was like, David, you got to quote that. So he, he put that in, and it's slower in the piece, so it's not instantly recognizable, but the trombone has that five-lit. And it was funny, last night we were sitting, and I was showing him a bunch of quotes that Bernstein stole for uh, West Side Story. I was like, see, Bernstein did it too. It's okay that you stole a little, a little line there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, and that, but it, that Stravinsky quote, oh, like the second it happens in the piece, it's just perfect. And it's just this eerie, just kind of like pulls you because there's that rhythmic tension of five over four. It's, it's super cool. Yeah, it's, it is the first time in the history of pieces that I've written. I feel like there are so many techniques that I can say. The first time I ever did this was in a piece Ben asked me to write was, um, it's the first time I've written tuplets that go across a bar line which as a finale user was a headache and a half to get notated properly. So, and there were some engravers that, you know, were trying to tell me, it's like, that's not a thing. And then I told them it's for a percussion piece. And they were like, oh, that's okay. Percussionists are weird. Yeah. So right. notating for percussion is its own entertaining animal. There are a lot of uh, professional engravers. So actually on that note, back to Zach's pieces for a second, flying tones, like I said, it begins with this crash symbol trio. And so the crash symbol trio happens, the first 19 bars, and I think it's bar 20. The piece goes into 4-4, four, four, and there's two break drums that enter and start hocketing. And we had the hardest time for, like, literally weeks trying to get that section to line up. And then one day the light bulb turned on, and actually the crash symbol part from the beginning repeats, but it's now written in 4-4. Four, four. That's correct. And it, it took me forever to figure that out, but once I did, I told the crash symbols, I was like, throw out measures 20 through 39 and just repeat the first 19 bars. Wow. And when we did it like that, so they don't actually read what you wrote, they just go back and repeat the first That's because I thought, and it works perfectly. Because of the, the hockey, you know, yeah, yeah. that I had to go. Well, and it's it. funny, because the break drum players are thinking in 4-4, four, four. they don't know that they're, you know, so it's yeah. like, but it works perfectly, so yeah. Okay. Notation <laughs> at times gets in our way. Again, you can, uh, it, all those rhythms are based on Than Anderson's birthday. Oh, I guess <laughs> he can play funk oh, his birthday. He couldn't have been born on like January first. <laughs> well, some of, some of the symbolism that we as composers end up going a bit haywire. One of the other piece that Ben commissioned me for, it's not being done for this particular concert, but I wrote for him in a uh, Kate Burns. We played at JMU. Oh yes. Um, yeah. The Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, it's but it was funny because I remembered. Um, thinking it was like getting the organization together and when the title officially comes to me, Tesla at work, and there's some 12-tone stuff in there, Ben immediately <laughs> says, you should have a tome row in there based on Tesla's name, which is which is like T-E-5, which looks like an S, and then in fixed do la, the notes end up being B flat, B natural, F, A. And I was looking at that going, crap, I have to revise all of the drafts I have so far. But it ended up being worth it. You know what, David, just throw it away. I'll write the piece. <laughs> I, I was going to say, how, mo how many more of these does Ben have left? Like, how many more does he get? Uh, dance. dance. 
So <laughs> yeah, it's bunky tent. Yeah, the um, but but I mean, it's it's the feedback as a composer. I actually really appreciate when I'm working with a performer who has so many ideas, because I feel like create creatively speaking, coming up with the ideas is the hardest part of composing, whereas developing the ideas and shaping the ideas is where a lot of the creative magic can happen. So so a lot of times composers will just be sitting back and waiting for the idea to come to them. And my ideas come to me via a lot of other people and Ben hands me a lot. So it actually really, really ignites my creativity in a way that I greatly appreciate. And the ideas that he always gives me are a challenge or a limitation, and I believe it's Stravinsky that actually makes the observation that the more limit, the more limitations that you have, the more creative you're forced to be. Right. So poetics and music. Still waiting yes. on my uh, still waiting on my royalties check, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's great. You know, it's great so to collaborate I. with a percussionist, right? Because percussionists they don't have a repertoire, but what if it's a string player? I think it's a little stranger. Like I, I don't like them to, to interact with me too much, right? And for somebody that unusual that does a lot of contemporary music, because they're going to be very conservative what they're suggesting, and oh, I don't think you should do that, or that's too difficult, or da da da. So you got to be careful who you, who the person is that you're collaborating with. Well, yeah, we've had a lot of composers on the show say that you know percussionists are fun. Of course, they're on a percussionist show, so maybe I shouldn't take it to heart too much. But uh, yeah, it makes sense. Percussionists are. Uh, a little more hungry, so maybe a little more open. I, I was going to ask, speaking of percussion, to, to you guys, what uh, I'm, I'm always curious: what pieces or composers do you do you go to when you're ex- explaining percussion to students? You know, is it always Verez ionization, or the, you know, there's certain things that you think, oh yeah, this is really good percussion writing. You know, I love the woodblock in uh, Prokofiev Five, or or something. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a big question. The two composers that immediately came t- to my mind were Schwantner and Bartok. Sure. Yeah. That's yeah. Good. Um. I, okay. Yeah. One of one of the uh, one of the classes I teach at University of Miami is an advanced counterpoint class, and I always use the music for strings, percussion, and celeste from Bartok, and that and mostly for the fugue aspect. But I really had to dive into that piece and some of the percussion writing in there is was just fascinating to me. And so, of course, I have to check out the Bartok Quartet for two pianos and two percussion, which is just like being able to see the extent that all of the players can do with that was just, was something that really, really expanded my mind. And as far as color goes, Schwantner just really, really knows how to get a vast array of different colors for percussion instruments. You know, you think about some of his uh, larger scale or, uh, when I'm or orchestral works and the mountains rising nowhere, new morning for the world, those sort of things. You, his grasp of metallic percussion with, in conjunction with drums, with, in conjunction with the more percussive aspects of an orchestra is just a fascinating study in color. I always use the three pieces. Um, one's uh, Nishimura's Ketchup uh, as an example of uh, you know using the voice and the percussion together. It's really interesting. And then the uh, Burial Circles is always a good a good yeah. piece. 
a multi, you know, a massive setup and and uh, the notation aspect of that piece. And then Stockhausen, if you're going to talk notation and percussion, you got to talk about Zyklus yeah. or Zyklus, whatever you want to call it. That's that. That's a crazy piece there. <laughs> I love. You said Barrio and uh, Circles is 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 great. I always reach for the folk songs with Barrio. Mm -hmm. I just I, I love the percussion writing and the the folk songs. And also, there's another one, uh, Sorotsky, uh, oh. Continuum. That, you know that piece for percussion? Oh yes, that was in Bill Mersh's percussion literature class. Yeah. I know it well. That's a that's a great piece, though. Yeah. I'm actually not familiar with it. So oh, I gotta check it out. It's a right. timeline work. <laughs> well, well, Ben, I think you've segued yourself pretty pretty good, oh, right? Yeah. You did. Is it that time? I think it's that time. Yeah, why not? All right. Well, since we have uh, Zach Browning on the show, and I studied at University of Illinois, which is where he taught. I thought now would be as good of a time as ever to uh, do a little segment on my dear teacher, William Mersch. Um, and since Zach works with him, uh, hopefully Zach can uh, provide some commentary as well. I'll verify him. <laughs> Behind the scenes, look at Bill Mersch. Fact check. <laughs> um, if you're curious for more info on Bill Mersch, there's, there's been quite a few uh, PAS articles over the years about him. Um, but my favorite was a 1989 article by David Via called PASIC 89, an Individual Entrepreneur, a Discussion with William Mersch. Um, and that's where most of my information came uh, from here. And also, obviously, I studied with him, so I knew some of this. And I'm really afraid to do this because I know he's going to listen to this and fact check me. So if I say anything wrong, uh, Professor Mersch, I'm sorry. And I uh, hope you still uh, count me as one of your own. <laughs> so anyway, um, but Bill Mersch grew up, uh, I, I should have written this down. I didn't actually write this down. I believe he grew up in Michigan. Quote, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but he played a marimba concerto in high school. And he said at that point he knew he wanted to be a marimba soloist, but he was also discouraged by the fact that there were only three concerti available in the repertoire at that time. Uh, which there were actually sort of five, just one. The Sarmientos wasn't available. It was under exclusivity, and the Mio is from Marimba and Vibes. But there was the Crescent Concerto, the Kirka Concerto, and the Bassa Concerto. So one person could easily play every Marimba Concerto ever written when Mersch was a high school student. Um, after high school, he went to the University of Michigan, where he received his bachelor's and master's degrees, and he studied with Charlie Owen. He said that he originally planned on transferring to a conservatory after one year, but he also realized when you have the principal of the Philadelphia Orchestra to study with, why would you go anywhere else? And I like this. I always like to know what people learn from their teachers. And Mersh says that Charlie dealt with the music, the sense of sound, phrasing music, and all that, which I wouldn't trade for anything, which I thought was nice. After he graduated Michigan, he moved to New York City in 1976. Um, and sorry, I skipped one step here. In college, his interest broadened beyond marimba repertoire to include jazz vibes and contemporary chamber repertoire. So he moved to New York City in 1976, and he sort of continued to pursue those other interests. And he actually studied vibes with uh, Dave Samuels back then. And after a few years, he started to turn back towards solo marimba. One of the things he learned from Charlie Owen, Charlie Owen apparently told him that if you were a good player and worked well, then basically the opportunities would come your way. But Mersh said he also believed in creating your own opportunities. So he wanted to start commissioning works to sort of expand the marimba repertoire. And he started commissioning works in the early 1980s. And he thought that it would be good to actually have a chamber group as a starting point, because that sort of provided a cushion for him to float on rather than just trying to go in all alone. So he, I can't, I couldn't tell if he either 
created or joined a group called the New York Quintet, but this group had the same exact instrumentation as Keiko Abe's group called the Tokyo Quintet, and the instrumentation was flute, clarinet, marimba, double bass, and percussion. And so the marimba player, which was Bill Mersch, only played marimba, and the percussion player, who was Jonathan Haas, only played percussion. There was no bleeding between those two. Um, and interestingly, as an aside, when Bill Mersch was trying to sort of start his solo career in marimba playing, Jonathan Haas was trying to start his solo career in timpani playing. And Mersch has this great story about they were sitting at a PASIC, and Alan Adi was doing a thing and just started ranting about the most pointless thing in the world is solo marimba. It's never going to be a thing. I don't know why people are going for this. And he said the whole time John John Haas was kind of nudging him with his elbow. And then Alan Adi finishes his rant wow. and he said, of course, the only thing more stupid than solo marimba is solo, solo timpani. timpani. <laughs> <laughs> and so Merce is right back at him with the elbow. Um, but anyway, so uh, in 1984, he said he found himself with enough solo repertoire to create a full-length solo marimba recital. So he changed his focus from the quintet to he wanted to do his New York debut recital. Um, and he did. It was an actual recital that he had a concert review for, which if you're in New York is like, you know, is a big deal. Um, some of his other sort of 1980s projects, he organized a consortium that received the 1984 NEA Consortium Commissioning Grant, which as we know, created uh, Velocities by Joseph Schwantner, Autumn Island by uh, uh, Roger Reynolds, and um, Reflections on the Nature of Water by Jacob Druckmann. In 1986, he became the first marimbas to receive an NEA solo recital, solo, excuse me, solo recitalist fellowship. And in 1986, he also established his organization, New Music Marimba, which is a nonprofit organization still around today with the goal of encouraging and supporting the creation of exceptional new marimba repertoire. This organization has been behind many great commissions over the years. And like I said, it's still around. He's still the artistic director for it. And uh, it's interesting. I thought at first they were only interested in commissioning pieces, but actually many episodes ago, we talked about the Lee Howard Stevens International Marimba Competition, and New Music Marimba was one of the sponsors behind that competition. He previously taught at Rutgers University, uh, and now he's teaching still at the University of Illinois. He's been featured at multiple PASICs, including 2016, where he performed on a 30-year anniversary of the NEA concert event. That was one of the evening concerts. And uh, he has a one of the most important marimba recordings of all time, arguably the most important, his album called The Modern Marimba, which is unfortunately out of print, but that's the recording that has his recording of the Druckmann and uh, Andy Thomas's Merlin as well. And I didn't know, honestly, till I was studying with him the extent of his commissions, but just a few of his commissions include Richard Rodney Bennett's After Searing 2 from 1984, Andy Thomas Merlin, 1985, Jacob Druckmann Reflections on the Nature of Water, 1986, Erica Ways in Northern Lights, 1989. Alejandro Benyao, Con Variations, 2001. Uh, he commissioned, I think, three marimba concertos over the years, my favorite of which is the Libby Larson marimba concerto called After Hampton from 1992. And it's, uh, has, it's supposed to be everything that's happened since Lionel Hampton, basically. And uh, there's this sort of percussion section trio in that piece where there's sort of a back and forth between the section and the soloist, which I think is always nice when the soloist gets to play with the resonant players. And one of his more recent uh, commissions, along with Casey, Megan, Laurel, 
Kate and Me was uh, Zach Browning's Fate and Fusion that he wrote for us. And Mersh has performed that work. Uh, he performed it, I think, in Argentina, and I think he did it on a faculty recital in Illinois as well. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, I hope I got it all right, Professor Mersh. I'm sorry if I got anything wrong. <laughs> uh, but that is sort of Bill Mersh in a nutshell. And I have to say, I mean, of all the teachers I studied with, he by far broadened, in two years with him, broadened my sort of perspectives on percussion the most. And still to this day, I think, is just one of my biggest influences. And I'm so grateful for all that he taught me. So. Yeah, his studio is still very, very strong. He's oh, been yeah. after write a piece for uh, String Quartet Marimba. So I've been so thinking about that. I had, his, I had an older list of commissions from him, and it says, Zach Browning's solo marimba piece in progress. Uh, <laughs> Did that ever come to fruition? No, that didn't happen yet. <laughs> so, so it's still in progress. Yeah, it's still in progress. <laughs> But yeah, the, the Marimba String Quartet seems interesting. Yeah, we, we've been talking about that. So Alejandro Vignal wants to do that too. I know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, any any uh, good stories of working with Mersh? Wow, <laughs> that you feel comfortable sharing. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on a couple of doctoral committees, and the, you you better know your percussion literature. You know, yeah. like, like obscure timpani parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you better know it. <laughs> well, I mean, we were talking about it last night. The man, he's a walking encyclopedia of percussion knowledge, and half of it he lived. So it's just firsthand experience, which is cool to hear him talk about commissioning reflections or something like that. But like, you know, oh, yeah, so in the, you know, 37th measure of this obscure timpani part from 1914, you know, like, and he, I mean, he knows all that early chamber repertoire, too, like the back of his hand, so, yeah. Yeah, I wrote a piece called Venus Notorious, and, and he played on that piece, and uh, the good part of that is when, when somebody's that uh, careful about details, then he's going to play your part really well, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that was a difficult work, and he, he pulled that off. <laughs> and in, in Fate and Fusion, yeah. There was a there was a metric modulation missing that no one would have caught. <laughs> That's right. And Bill Mersh got got in touch and said, "Hey Zach, I think there's something wrong. Your metronome markings don't don't line up here or something." Yeah, I'm like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> there was, was. Right. there was one missing. Right? But yeah, and also I don't. I, one thing I just wanted to mention, I don't think I mentioned enough, is that in the 1980s he was a serious serious freelancer in New York, um, and one of his sort of big Pride projects was that uh, he worked on the uh, Pirates of Penzance, uh, um, you know, Broadway pit score, mm -hmm. and the, there's a very extensive xylophone part in it that was sort of he worked with the composer a lot and oh, yeah. yeah yeah I'm gonna have I'm gonna have Gilbert and Sullivan stuck in my head for the rest of the day. <laughs> so thanks for that. Yeah. Hey, while we're talking, I just want to put this out there. We were talking about percussion works earlier. What he teaches students, totally forgot. No American there, and John Cage, the constructions. There's that guy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, yeah. I always bring those in too. I forgot about that. Oh, him? Well, yes, I, got, I just want to put that out there. I got to do. Mersh would have been mad at me. I got to do third construction, coached by Bill Mersh. Ah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> That is cool. That is cool. Well, Ben, I th thanks for again. Thanks as always for the segment. But I feel like yeah, doing this podcast with you for the past 140 episodes now, like you've done, I think Bill Mersh a great honor because you always remember all these yeah well that's these... where I, that's where i learned it <laughs> i mean but, but and like you remember it all too i mean you always yeah. i don't know you seem to remember all these things it's just very clear you, you refer to his percussion literature courses so much you know yeah just... i mean it was just two semesters of just yeah i mean fascinating informative yeah can i just add two names though to that uh one would be tom sawi who yeah. at the percussion program in a great 
position when Bill Murch took over. And then Ricardo Flores, who's there now, oh, yeah. uh, lap percussion and jazz uh, has really helped that program too. Yeah. And yeah, actually, course. Bill Murch would be mad if I didn't mention University of Illinois percussion. Uh, I, I almost actually presented on this today, but I didn't think I'd be able to find enough info. Paul Price was the original. Um, sometime around 1950, and Paul Price was sort of the first person, in my opinion, anyway, to really see percussion as a very diverse art form. And uh, Paul Price created the first four-credit university percussion ensemble, was at University of Illinois. And there's a lot of early commissions uh, for that group, uh, and he was the one that sort of pushed Michael Colgrass toward nah. composing. And then I think Jack McKenzie taught there, maybe in between, yes. but yeah, there's Paul Price, and then the next big one that stuck around for a very long time was Tom Sywe, and then after that is Bill Mersh, so that's the legacy there. And now the ensemble gets one credit. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> <Probably> two. <laughs> Wow, cool. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben. Laurel, I think you have a question for our, our guests. I do, yeah. So this is uh, changing direction just a little bit, but we mentioned how David and Ben went to school together at Miami, but David and I went to school together in Tennessee for undergrad. So we've known each other for quite a while. Yeah, since uh, 2004. Wow. Wow. It, yeah, it, I think it, so. It feels like a few years ago, and yet it also feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's funny <laughs> how that happens. And though, um, yeah, I've never commissioned David. I have premiered one of your works. We did your timpani piano solo. Oh, yes. Together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, nightmares. That one actually has a nightmares. Really fun, yeah, that, that one really has a fun story behind it, um, because uh, one of the perks of University of Tennessee was that because it was an older building and like half the locks of the building were broken at the time, um, essentially that what that meant was that the practice rooms were open 24 seven and they always kept the stage unlocked so people could practice on the stage. So you always had your late night crew, which included myself and Laurel sometimes. So uh, you'd find several people there who actually got pretty close because they were the ones competing for the stage at 2 a.m. Um, <laughs> And around the time I had started thinking a little bit about it was like some extended techniques on the piano, that kind of thing. And another friend of mine from a different department um, who was getting a dance degree actually asked me if I could write a piece for her to choreograph. And so I already had this idea of like, you know, percussive things on the inside of the piano. And then it was like, you know, this needs a timpani. Who am I going to get to play timpani? Well, I know Laurel will practice it. <laughs> so, um, and she's an amazing player. She was, um, we were both sophomores, I think. And you were already one of the top players in the wind ensemble. And I just saw a lot of the performances you did. You were an extremely passionate player. And I knew that a passionate player would make for a passionate performance, which would make for a passionate dance. And so the ideas that I had were really aggressive. And somebody told me, I was like, these, these sound like a nightmare. So oh, the, the piece was super short, uh, only four minutes long. And I honestly didn't expect it to go anywhere after the, after the choreography thing. But then we ended up performing it for something else. And then another person asked about it um, at like the University of Ohio. And then I got like a few emails from very various other people um, saying it was like, oh, I'd love to do this. And Laurel, I think you mentioned you did it um, 
somewhere overseas or something like that. I um, didn't play it, but I really talked it up. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a uh, so, and I I noticed several people like you know checking out my website hits went up after that. It was like, <laughs> why am I getting website hits from? I think it was Italy. Yeah, uh, Italy. Yeah, and then it was like, oh, cool, this is fun. And but every time it's been performed, people have told me, oh my gosh, that piece is fantastic. But why is it so short? So one of the other quote unquote in progress things that Laurel and I really want to do down the road is I want to make it into like a three movement thing. So um, Laurel, you're part of this uh, fantastic uh, duet with another person that I was in school with during my master's, uh, Maryam Parker. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and she plays, she's a phenomenal pianist. Huh? So I think that would be fantastic to be able to write um, for the two of you guys to do together sometime down the road. So when uh, that might be a project for this summer. So. Yeah, that sounds great. I just want to second the idea, or I guess third at this point, because I saw Laurel <laughs> do that at where she and I used to teach Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. And yeah, I just I just thought, yeah, man, that's phenomenal. And yeah, if you guys haven't seen Laurel play timpani, she's really good at timpani. Oh. <laughs> that's really yeah. one of the better performances I've ever seen, period. That's really nice. Thank you. Yeah, so. yeah the um well I remembered with the uh with the premiere performance because uh when Laurel plays, it's like focus is on. You know, it's like and she can look very aggressive behind the instrument. And, uh, and, you know, it's like, it's called nightmares. You want it to be scary as possible. And so, and I had her using wood mallets for it. And the piano part I wrote was also really, really intense. And some people have told me that I always look like a super angry composer. So as it went after the premiere, it's like you have the silence immediately after, and you just hear a collective breath from the entire audience, where it was like, I think they forgot to breathe because they were too frightened by what was taking place on stage. So, um. I, I just had to laugh when, because David was talking about this piece for timpani was, you know, written for dancers. And Bill Mersh actually had a great story. Do you guys know the piece, Steal the Thunder? I think it's by John Pichet. Yeah. And it's like for sure. It's Bev John. It's one of Bev Johnson's big pieces, and it's yeah. mostly yeah. timpani. There's some uh, some gliss gongs and electronics. And Bill Mersh, when he was in New York, got booked to play this piece with a with a dance group, and they had never heard anything as loud as timpani. Uh -huh. <laughs> and he said, when he hit the first note, all these ballerinas on stage just jumped. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> such, such a cool instrument, you know. It's and also deceptively hard to write for. Um, sure. It's yeah. The well, just from the standpoint, the hardest thing that I had to learn with writing for timpani was the fact that timpanists only have two feet. So if you're wanting to write things with lots of drum changes, that's something you need to keep in mind and. It's like, yeah, I get the concept of having to, you know, use feet for changes. I'm an organist after all. But I kept on wanting to try and make the timpani fit in with like the roots of every single chord instead of thinking of, oh, well, what if I, I could just do this with four different notes and each of these fit into the chord and it will have 
the exact same effect. You know, yeah. timp timpani is not an extremely loud pizzicato bass mixed with a bass drum. That's not how timpani works. And was it? I think it's uh, Goodman. I think it would use the chain drums on the outside and pedal timpani on the inside, mm. and would you know, pretty much only pedal inside. But then the other thing I think about writing timpani, writing for timpani, a lot of people don't realize is that while the range might be, you know you can get a C below the bass clef up to B flat in the, you know, bottom of the bass clef, something like that. Most of that doesn't sound very good. <laughs> yeah. Like on a 32 inch timpani, if you're, I mean, below an F in my opinion, really just doesn't sound very good. And if it's really high up, it sounds choked and not very good. So I think a lot of people write, and I remember Jury So had a piece that I played in orchestra that went down to a C below the bass clef. It's like, okay, like this drum will get that, but you have to understand it's gonna sound guttural i mean and that can be an effect but actually i think it's an aries like sometimes that's okay but if you're expecting a nice pom, like you're not going to get it out of the whole range oh but right. man, i yeah. love that sound i love that you know the lowest distinguishable pitch with heavy heavy mallets just such yeah. a cool sound mm -hmm. Yeah, well, Nightmares, actually, the drums are fixed tuned to a low D and a G and a B flat. And the first, like, 56 measures, um, this sounds like, the way I'm talking about this, it's going to sound like an extremely boring timpani part. But, like, the first 50-something measures are just this ostinato rhythm on that low D drum with wooden mallets, you know, at a really soft dynamic. And it's, and I promise, you know, it's like, the piano part makes it more, makes it more interesting than just <laughs> that because you know it's like thinking well that's a really boring thing for somebody to play in a duet but it ends up being super effective because the low note sounds so out of place with a wood mallet and then right around the time that you start getting used to it after like 50 something repetitions that's when things really really start taking off yeah, yeah totally it's agree. a really successful piece i'm I'm excited that it's going to be expanded because yeah. it's yeah. worth it. Yeah. yeah me too. Um, Seems like yeah. a good, maybe like especially like a junior recital piece. Like, all right, we've heard enough Carter. Like, let's get something different in on yeah. timpani. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, please. Problem is you need a pianist who's got some arms because they've, <laughs> you got to be strong, I think, to play the piano part. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, when I premiered the piano part, I've got a very heavy hand on the piano and I've got, a fairly large reach and I'm also a left-handed performer so um, list-esque bass runs with octave spreads are perfectly comfortable for me mm. but that doesn't necessarily mean they're comfortable for everybody so that's another dilemma as you know a composer who's also an active performer you know writing things that are not tailored specifically for me to play just because I happen to be the person involved with the premiere, so uh, so that um, that definitely comes into play because you know I, I'm a there were a lot of jokes in my undergrad about how I'm a very aggressive, heavy-handed pianist because I mean it's just I'm a I'm a very passionate out there kind of person, so of course my playing is going to reflect that, but not everybody wants to play that hard and fast all the time it's like after those four minutes of that piece the pianist is tired mm. so it's the second movement's definitely going to be something where the pianist can 
calm down for a, for a while and you know do softer things so mm -hmm. gotcha gotcha yeah i do have a, a question that hopefully we'll get zach in on this too but i was reading uh a little bit about what you teach at miami david and that they have something called the experiential music curriculum oh god <laughs> it's gotten a lot better do you have an, since you were there do you have an hour laurel <laughs> i just well, i think this I mean, is cool though we should we should we should go a little long if you guys can because i think this is yeah, a neat, oh yeah absolutely this is a um, neat topic yeah, so the experiential music curriculum, and I'm actually super glad that you asked about this. Um, it's something that I've given a lot of presentations on this semester alone. But the idea behind it, and all of us have taken music theory courses. And one of the big questions that we encounter as students and that teachers see other students asking is, this is fantastic. When is this going to be useful? You know, or... I just learned about German augmented six chords, and now I'm going to forget about this for the rest of my life. And being able to tie this into ear training, the ear training program at our, at, in my undergrad and Laurel's undergrad, it was, um, I'm not going to say that it was bad because it wasn't bad in any aspect at all, but it, but it didn't feel completely engaged because a lot of the tests were by the computer, that sort of thing. And it's just like, okay, show up, do a sightseeing exam, you know, yes, I can pass this computer test on intervals. I don't feel any connection to what's actually happening with the music. And the dean of the University of Miami, Shelley Berg, who is an amazing pianist and just an amazing pedagogue, I have a lot of respect for him. He had this fantastic idea to approach teaching of music theory and bringing in aspects of composition, performance, and improvisation into the classroom setting. And the way that works is that in a theory class, you know, if they teach, you know, certain aspects of form, the students have to write a piece in that form. And that piece is performed by classmates in class. So they're able to facilitate this. They have several teachers with very, very small sections that you'll have a class size of maybe six or seven people. And they will, the students will write for their classmates in that class and perform each other's pieces in there. And that's the theory side of things. So they learn about things like augmented six chords by writing augmented six chords in pieces for their students to play. On the ear training side, there's um, a very heavy improvisation element because if you can understand the concept, then hypothetically speaking, you should be able to perform that concept in its entirety and be able to hear what's going on. Well, also, if I can interject, I think a lot of the time ear training becomes like this very dumb sort of like, oh, a perfect fourth sounds like here comes the bride, you know, or a major third sounds like a doorbell, or a minor third sounds like a doorbell, whatever. Yeah. And I think it's completely devoid of any emotional context. Mm -hmm. And Jacob Collier talks a lot about how like intervals actually have a feeling, like a fifth feels very pure and open, and you know, like a major seventh feels very tense and like it needs to spread out to an octave and so on. Um, and where was it going? Oh, but I remember I saw one of the tests for the undergrads at Miami, and it was a listening test, and they played the uh, beginning of the Beatles, Oh Darling, and it has this chord that just makes you just sort of like 
get up out of your seat a little bit. It just feels really unsettled. It's an augmented triad. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know how many of my students can't identify it. Like, it's just stacked major thirds. Like, why? It's, what's so hard about it? But the second you hear it, you go, oh, I like, I know how that feels. I want to, you know, makes me tense up. <laughs> well, I, just, I just want to say this uh, about the University of Illinois is unique in this way, uh, in that we have composers that teach theory. We have no theory division or no theorists. <laughs> Uh, and I think about what you're talking about, it has a lot to do with who teaches theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, at our school, it's the norm. They have all this composition going on in the theory classes. Uh, for instance, I, I was just thinking about what you're talking about. Uh, when I do the, uh, what did we have a four semester sequence of the four semesters, 20th century, uh, I always have them write a lot of music. And one of the projects is, uh, um, they have to use chance procedures uh, and apply it to the University of Illinois' library catalog. Oh, wow. And whatever they come up with is the piece. They have to make a piece out of with their source, and then they perform these. <laughs> I've had the crazy things happen, people banging on the walls. I've had teachers come in, who's in charge here? <laughs> and I'm in the back. <laughs> I, just, well, you know, I never say who's in charge. I just let the students take over. You know, uh, George Harrison was into I Ching, mm-hmm. and like that was like he picked up a book and said something about gently weeps, and that's where while my guitar gently weeps, that song is from I Ching. Mm-hmm. Well, Cage, they, he didn't teach very often, but he said that uh, one of the I got it from him. One of the sessions he taught, I think University of California Redlands, he did this. He said he met with the group. He taught him the I Ching. He said, go apply it to the library. Whatever you find is what you should learn for this class. And that was it. So uh, Ed Smith on his podcast, you met Ed Smith later on his podcast. Episode, he worked with John Cage. And he said John Cage would write out answers to questions ahead of time. Yes. And people would ask him a question in a class, and he would give a pre, mm-hmm. pre-written response. Yeah, he's done that in lectures. Right? He's done that with lectures. Or he did do that with lectures. Yeah. Uh, but to, to revisit what you were saying about um, uh, Illinois having just composers, no theorists, uh, Miami is actually the exact same way. Okay. And, uh, and that, uh, that's been a development over time. It's like a theorist retires. The person that seems best to step in with the curriculum that we use is a composer. And is that Charles Mason is in charge? Yeah, yeah. yes, Chuck Mason is um, the person in charge of the department. The guy's doctor in University of Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a he is a brilliant man, and he just really, really knows how to bring a lot out of the program. He was also on my committee. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Connections. Thanks, yeah. Chuck Mason. <laughs> his his wife Dorothy Heintman yeah, was my yeah was my doctoral chair in my yeah. undergrad, uh, and um. So, but just this idea of using improvisation and real world examples and that sort of thing. Um, one of the projects that my students have um, been doing that they did near the beginning of the semester, we were looking at the, uh, this is my sophomore class. We were looking a little bit at the corporation for the uh, for the A section of the Chopin Nocturne in E flat. And, you know, the da dum, ba da da dum, that one. And uh, the, the piece, um, the accompaniment for that has a lot of like secondary dominance and that sort of stuff. And so it's like, okay, can you play the accompaniment without the sheet music in front of you? Like, can you find the notes in the chord yourself? And let's play it in the style of Chopin. Now, I want you to improvise over that chord progression in the style of Chopin. Now, 
now that we've done this for a while, let's make it a tango. So I have these students playing a tango based on the A section of the Chopin Nocturne oh. in the style by ear. And that's just such a neat concept that a student can be that involved with thinking about the chord progressions and knowing what the notes are and having figured it out themselves in that way, where they aren't playing from sheet music, they're actually having to dive into the music knowing the theory, which I just think is such a delightful concept and that I really, um, as a composer, I relish in it because sometimes notation gets in the way. So. Wow, very cool. It, this kind of reminds me of a conversation I was in with, I don't know, maybe a, a room of... Uh, 20 performers, composers, music theorists, music historians, and we were talking about recruiting, just like, you know, what we're all asked to do, where we all work, and and, um, and one of the, the theory folks said, oh, it's, it's hard for us to recruit. We can't really recruit. And I just, I, I didn't say it at the time, but I've, I've told myself, if I'm ever in that conversation again, I just really disagree. You know, I think, I think, no, like music is so interesting. I mean, I, I, I go clinic and master class and people want to talk about hand position and technique. And I just don't, I just don't think that's interesting. <laughs> like, like I want to, <laughs> I want to tell them, uh, you know, why I think pieces of music are interesting and it's a much more theory type conversation. And, um, I, I, I think theory class in university is, is harder because they're they're more confined by like we mentioned augmented six chords earlier when this started and it's harder because that's harder to like test you know you have to you have to kind of test that and in order to prepare them for the test that inherently kind of structures your lectures to be you know perhaps not as inspiring uh, as they could be you know if you didn't well, have to I, test for example i think there's like a, a very easy parallel to like history for example you can memorize the date of every war that's ever happened but not really get it but if yeah. you even if you don't know the dates of the wars if you know the effects and where that led and what led up to the revolution or you know like things like that i think it demonstrates an understanding of history so much yeah. more and with music, like, yeah, you need to know what a one chord is. You need to know what a five chord is. But more important than that, you need to know how they function. And I think yeah. all too often we get caught up on what are the notes of a, of a five chord in the key of C major right. without thinking about the fact that the most important note is sort of the B that always wants to push up to the C sort of thing. And mm -hmm. I guess that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. I think the problem is when it comes into how to test it. Yeah. It, it becomes all of a sudden it seems like it's about this other thing but when really it's it's about what you guys are saying you know of course that, i mean that starts to get into you know the educational philosophies that we see in public schools with standardized testing and how that comes into play and that's a subject for another podcast entirely <laughs> of course too right <laughs> Well, so. you know, we have, we have to wrap, but, you know, two episodes ago, Clocks in Motion Quartet was here, and th th they talked about commissions and having a longer, long-standing relationship with a composer. And, man, Ben, this is just really cool that what you and David and Zach have. You know, it's just yeah. really cool. Like, clearly you've done <laughs> what what they were talking about, and it very much just shows. Like, you know, I don't even think Laurel and I needed to be here today. You guys could have easily just, like, you know, <laughs> chatted away, and it would have been really interesting. You know, well, not and, only could you have talked, but you could have you had so many interesting things to say. So, yeah, also, thank you so I much, just, Zach and, I, and David, for being here. Yeah, pleasure. I think it's interesting also for, for from a student's perspective – it's very common to bring 
uh, Michael Burden to come do a solo with your students. Or Casey, I know you do that quite a bit. Come play a solo with my students on the Progression Ensemble concert. And that is very valuable, don't get me wrong. I think it's equally valuable and another perspective they should have to work with the composer. And so, sure. yeah, like last year I had Ricardo Flores from Illinois and he played with my students. This year I wanted to have composers in so they could get that the other side of the coin of you know the inner workings of the music. And so it's been a blast having, we worked with Zach yesterday and we're doing both their pieces today. Um, so it's been, a, it was a blast last night and I'm sure we'll have even more fun today. <laughs> I'm, super, I'm super excited. Well, and I would tack on, Ben, I think it's it's real valuable having them back a second or third or fourth time because you shed, for your students, you know, you shed so much of that first time visit thing, yeah. you know, I don't know, all the little things that go into, you well, know, just cool. like the ice breaking, those, those yeah, are already it's cool, gone. Especially the student that transferred from Florida because he worked with Zach in Florida two years ago and now Zach's here. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, it's like, and I, I always try to hype up people and I was like, Zach's the coolest guy you'll ever meet. And he was like, he really is. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I, uh, well, and uh, he, uh, the student, he was my chauffeur from the airport from yeah, Dallas yeah. to Stephenville, so I got to spend an hour and a half talking <laughs> to him. So it's you, you got a great group of students, Ben. I've really enjoyed getting to know them so far, and I'm really excited to see what they do with my stuff tonight. That'll be fun. Yeah. Man, well, congratulations on everything you guys are doing, and, yeah, thanks so much for sharing. And, yeah, great snag as always, Ben and Laurel. Thanks for joining we will yeah. catch and Robin thanks for joining yeah Laurel's been Laurel's been pretty busy this episode though she's not talking I know you guys can't see the listeners you can't see but every Sunday when we record these Laurel has our three month year old son in her hands yeah yeah trying to talk and type and today was harder yeah. <laughs> Just quickly, what's sometimes the... he makes a cameo yeah what, what's the birthday he January. was born January 14th. Well, I have my, my, granddaughter, my grandson was just born um, December 27th. Oh, oh yeah. bring it up because I'm babysitting a lot now. <laughs> it's oh, tough it's work. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. We recommend it. All the stories are true. It's fun stuff. Oh, but I got to say this. I, he, he starts screaming, and I found there are potential parents out there. Whatever. I have a drum set, so I sit down the drum set, and I take the, the snare drum stick and... Uh, vertical hit the edge of the cymbals so you get the harmonics on the edge nice he it. he'll stop crying immediately oh, funny. <laughs> so it works every time <laughs> i thought you were going to say you just stick it in his mouth and he stops <laughs> that, hey that's what martha does to get zach to be quiet <laughs> yeah. oh gotcha I, I have a niece and i have a nephew and um they they were uh, they're like I want to say they're four and two now. They might be three and one. I'm such a good uncle, can you tell? <laughs> um, but the uh, but I was visiting and they were having a tantrum, and so I just sat down at the piano and started playing stuff. And they shut up <laughs> immediately. Yeah. They were just like so enthralled, and I was like, "You're welcome, sis." Awesome. Hey, thank you so much, everyone. We'll catch you on 142. All right. Cool. All right. Bye. Bye.